Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good morning, good evening, or good night to you lovely listener on the other end. Today I have something special, like you. A story recommended to me by a listener titled Rawdon Roof. It's a tale set in the late 1930s, 1938 to be exact, and not only is it uniquely modern in language for being something so old, it is yet so dated by social standards. I wanted to share this tale because of that sort of schism and cultural tone that a story like this can bring, particularly the perspective of women in the eyes of men during the 1930s, as we can witness the silent social norms and prejudices back then that permeated even literature at the time. Now you know me by now listeners, I enjoy shaking things up and giving you something different to listen to. And I'm open to your feedback if you feel any aspect of this story crosses any line. I usually and almost always omit anything serious and use the other not so serious social infractions that you'll witness in today's story as a tool for reflection. This goes without saying though that I don't support sentiments or perspectives towards women shared by our two protagonists. But just in case, I wanted to put that out there. Alright you lovelies, turn the lights off, get cosy, and join me for a tale from long, long ago. Rawdon was the sort of man who said, privately, to his men friends, over a glass of wine after dinner, No woman shall sleep again under my roof. He said it with pride rather vaunting, pursing his lips. Even my housekeeper goes home to sleep. But the housekeeper was a gentle old thing of about sixty, so it seemed a little fantastic. Moreover, the man had a wife, of whom he was secretly rather proud, as a piece of fine property and whom he kept up a very witty correspondence, epistolary, and whom he treated with humorous gallantry when they occasionally met for half an hour. Also, he had a love affair going on. At least, if it wasn't a love affair, what was it? No, I have come under the distinct determination that no woman will sleep under my roof again. Not even a female cat. One looked at the roof and wondered what it had done amiss. Besides, it wasn't his roof. He only rented the house. What does a man mean, anyhow? when he says, my roof, my roof. The only roof I am conscious of having myself is the top of my head. However, he hardly can have meant that no woman should sleep under the elegant dome of his skull. Though there's no telling. You see the top of a sleek head through a window and you say, by Joe, what a pretty girl's head. And after all, when the individual comes out, it's in trousers. The point, however, is that Rawdon said so emphatically. No, not emphatically, succinctly. No woman shall ever again sleep under my roof. It was a case of futurity. No doubt he had his ceilings whitewashed and their memories put out, or rather repainted, for it was a handsome wooden ceiling. Anyhow, if ceilings have eyes and walls have ears, then Rawdon had given his ceilings a new outlook, with a new coat of paint, and all memory of any woman's having slept under them 
For after all, in decent circumstances, we sleep under ceilings, not under roofs, was wiped out forever. And will you neither sleep under any woman's roof? That pulled him up rather short. He was not prepared to source his gander as he had sourced his goose. Even I could see the thought flitting through his mind that some of his pleasantest holidays depended on the charm of his hostess. Even some of the nicest hotels were run by women. Ah, well, that's not quite the same thing, you know. When one leaves one's house, one gives up the keys of circumstance, so to speak. But as far as possible, I make it a rule not to sleep under a roof that is openly and obviously and obtrusively a woman's roof. Quite, said I with a shudder. So do I. Now I understood his mysterious love affair less than ever. He was never known to speak of this love affair. He did not even write about it to his wife. The lady, for she was a lady, lived only five minutes' walk from Rawdon. She had a husband, but he was in diplomatic service, or something like that, which kept him occupied in a sufficiently far distance. Yes, far enough. And as a husband, he was a complete diplomat, a balance of power. If he was entitled to occupy the wide field of the world, she the other and contrasting power, might concentrate and consolidate her position at home. She was a charming woman, too, and even a beautiful woman. She had two charming children, long-legged, stalkly, clove-pink, half-open sort of children, but really charming. And she was a woman with a certain mystery. She never talked. She never said anything about herself. Perhaps she suffered. Perhaps she was frightfully happy, and made that her cause for silence. Perhaps she was wise enough even to be beautifully silent about her happiness. Certainly she never mentioned her sufferings or even her trials, and certainly she must have a fair handful of the latter. For Alec Drummond sometimes fled home in the teeth of a gale of debts. He simply got through his own money and through hers, and third and fatal stride, through other people's as well. Then something had to be done about it. And Janet, dear soul, had to put her hat on and take journeys. But she never said anything of it. At least, she did just hint that Alec didn't quite make enough money to meet expenses. But after all, we don't go about with our eyes shut. And Alec Drummond, whatever else he did, didn't hide his prowess under a bushel. Rawdon and he were quite friendly, but really... None of them ever talked. Drummond didn't talk. He just went off and behaved in his own way. And though Rawdon would chat away till the small hours, he never talked. Not to his nearest male friend did he ever mention Janet, save as a very pleasant woman, and his neighbour. He admitted he adored her children. They often came to see him. And one felt about Rawdon. He was making a mystery of something. And that was rather irritating. He went every day to see Janet, and of course we saw him going, going or coming. How can one help but see? But he always went in the morning at about eleven, and did not stay for lunch, or he went in the afternoon and came home to dinner. Apparently he was never there in the evening. Poor Janet, she lived like a widow. Very well. If Rawdon wanted to make it so blatantly obvious 
that it was only platonic, purely platonic, why wasn't he natural? Why didn't he say simply, I'm very fond of Janet Drummond, she is my very dear friend? Why did he sort of curl up at the very mention of a name, and curdle into silence, or he'll say rather forcedly, Yes, she is a charming woman. I see a good deal of her, but chiefly for the children's sake. I'm devoted to the children. Then he would look at one in such a curious way, as if he were hiding something. And after all, what was there to hide? If he was the woman's friend, why not? It could be a charming friendship. And if he were her lover, why, heaven bless me, he ought to have been proud of it, and show just a glint, just an honest man's glint. But no, never a glint of pride or pleasure in the relation either way. Instead of that, this rather theatrical reserve. Janet, it is true, was just as reserved. If she could, she avoided mentioning his name. Yet one knew, sure as houses, she felt something. One suspected her of being more in love with Rawdon than ever she had been with Alec, and one felt that there was a hush upon it all. She had had a hush put upon her. By whom? By both the men? Or by Rawdon only? Or by Drummond? Was it for her husband's sake? Impossible. For her children's? But why? Her children were devoted to Rawdon. It had now become the custom for them to go to him three times a week for music. I don't mean he taught them the piano. Rawdon was a very refined musical amateur. He had them sing, in their delicate girlish voices, delicate little songs. And really, he succeeded wonderfully with them. He made them so true, which children rarely are, musically, and so pure and effortlessly, like little flamelets of sound. It really was rather beautiful and sweet of him. And he taught them music, the delicacy of the feel of it. They had a regular teacher for the practice. Even the little girls, in their young little ways, were in love with Rawdon. So if their mother were in love too, in her ripened womanhood, why not? Poor Janet! She was so still and so elusive, the hush upon her. She was rather like a half-opened rose that somebody had tied a string around, so that it couldn't open any more. But why? Why? In her there was a real touch of mystery. One could never ask her, because one knew her heart was too keenly involved, or her pride. Whereas there was really no mystery about Rawdon, refined and handsome and subtle as he was, he had no mystery, at least to a man. What he wrapped himself up in was a certain amount of mystification. Who wouldn't be irritated to hear a fellow saying when for months and months he has been paying a daily visit to a lonely and very attractive woman, nay, lately even a twice daily visit, even if always before sundown, to hear him say, pursing his lips after a sip of his own very moderate port, I have taken a vow that no woman shall sleep under my roof again. I almost snapped out. Oh, what the hell? And what about your Janet? But I remembered in time it was not my affair. And if he wanted to have his mystifications, let him have them. If he meant he wouldn't have his wife sleep under his roof again, that one could understand. They were really very witty with one another. He and she, but fatally and damnably married. 
Yet neither wanted a divorce and neither put the slightest claim to any control over the other's behavior. Women live on the moon, men live on the earth. And she said, I don't mind in the least if he loves Janet Drummond, poor thing. It would be a change for him from loving himself, and a change for her if somebody loved her. Poor Janet. But he wouldn't have her sleep under his roof, no, not for any money, and apparently he never slept under hers, if she could be said to have one. So what the deuce? Of course, if they were friends, just friends, all right. But then in that case, why start talking about not having a woman sleep under your roof? Pure mystification. The cat never came out of the bag, but one evening I distinctly heard it mewing inside its sack, and I even believe I saw a claw through the canvas. It was in November, everything much as usual, myself pricking my ears to hear if the rain had stopped, and I could go home, because I was just a little bored about Conimus music. I had been having dinner with Rawdon, and listening to him ever since on his favourite topic, not of course, women, and why they shouldn't sleep under his roof, but 14th century melody and windbag accompaniment. It was not late, not yet 10 o'clock, but I was restless and wanted to go home. There was no longer any sound of rain and Rawdon was perhaps going to make a pause in his monologue. Suddenly there was a tap at the door and Rawdon's man, Hawken, edged in. Rawdon, who had been a major in some fantastic capacity during the war, had brought Hawken back with him. This fresh-faced man, about 35, appeared in the doorway with an intensely blank and bewildered look on his face. He was really an extraordinarily good actor. A lady, sir, he said with a look of utter blankness. A what? snapped Rawdon. A lady. Then with the most discreet drop in his voice. Mrs. Drummond, sir. He looked modestly down at his feet. Rawdon went deathly white and his lips quivered. Miss Drummond, where? Hawken lifted his eyes to his master in a fleeting glance. I showed her into the dining room, there being no fire in the drawing room. Rawdon got to his feet and took two or three agitated strides. He could not make up his mind. At last, he said, his lips working with agitation. Bring her in here. Then he turned with a theatrical gesture to me. What's this all about? I don't know, he said. Let me clear out, said I, making for the door. He caught me by the arm. No, for God's sake, for God's sake stop and see me through. He gripped my arm till it really hurt, and his eyes were quite wild. I did not know my Olympic Rawdon. Hastily, I backed away to the side of the fire, we were in Rawdon's room, where the books and piano were, and Mrs. Drummond appeared in the doorway. She was much paler than usual, being a rather warm-coloured woman, and she glanced at me with big, reproachful eyes, as much to say, You intruder! You interloper! For my part, I could do nothing but stare. She wore a black wrap, which I knew quite well, over her black dinner dress. Rawdon! She said, turning to him and blotting out my existence from her consciousness, Hawkins softly closed the door, and I could feel him standing on the threshold outside, listening keen as a hawk. Sit down, Janet, said Rawdon, with a grimace of a sour smile. 
which he could not get rid of once he had started it, so that his face looked very odd indeed, like a mask which he was unable to either to fit or take off. He had several conflicting expressions all at once, and they had all stuck. She let her wrap slip back on her shoulders, and knitted her white fingers against her skirt, pressing down her arms, and gazing at him with a terrible gaze. I began to creep to the door. Rawdon started after me. No, don't go. Don't go. I specifically want you not to go. He said in extreme agitation. I looked at her. She was looking at him with a heavy, somber kind of stare. Me, she absolutely ignored. Not for a second could she forgive me for existing on this earth. I slunk back to my post behind the leather armchair, as if hiding. Do sit down, Janet, he said to her again, and have a smoke. What will you drink? No thanks, she said, as if it were one word slurred out. No thanks. And she proceeded again to fix him with that heavy, potentuous stare. He offered her a cigarette. His hand trembled as he held out the silver box. No thanks. She slurred out again, not even looking at the box, but keeping him fixed with that dark and heavy stare. He turned away, making a great delay lighting a cigarette with his back to her to get out of the stream of that stare. He carefully went for an ashtray and put it carefully within reach, all the time trying not to be swept away on that stare. And she stood with her fingers locked, her straight, plump, handsome arms pressed downwards against her skirt, and she gazed at him. He leaned his elbow on the mantelpiece abstractedly for a moment. Then he started suddenly and rang the bell. She turned her eyes from him for a moment to watch his middle finger pressing the bell button. Then there was a tension of waiting, an interruption in the previous tension. We waited. Nobody came. Rawdon rang again. That's very curious. He murmured to himself. Hawken was usually so prompt. Hawken, not being a woman, slept under the roof, so there was no excuse for his not answering the bell. The tension in the room had now changed quality, owing to this new suspense. Poor Janet's somber stare became gradually loosened, so to speak. Attention was divided. Where was Hawken? Rawdon rang the bell a third time, a long peal, and now Janet was no longer the center of suspense. Where was Hawken? The question loomed large over every other. I'll just look in the kitchen, said I, making for the door. No, no, I'll go, said Rawdon. But I was in the passage and Rawdon was on my heels. The kitchen was very tidy and cheerful, but empty. Only a bottle of beer and two glasses stood on the table. To Rawdon, the kitchen was a stranger world as to me. He never entered the servants' quarters, but to me it was curious that the bottle of beer was empty and both the glasses had been used. I knew Rawdon wouldn't notice. That's very curious, said Rawdon, meaning the absence of his man. At that point we heard a step on the servant's stair, and Rawdon opened the door to reveal Hawken, descending with an armful of sheets and things. What are you doing? Why, 
and a pause. I was airing the clean laundry like not to waste the fire last thing. Hawkins descended into the kitchen with a very flushed face and very bright eyes and rather ruffled hair and proceeded to spread the linen on the chairs before the fire. I hope I've not done wrong, sir, he said in his most winning manner. Was you ringing? Three times. Leave that linen and bring a bottle of the fizz. I'm sorry, sir. You can't hear the bell on the front, sir. It was perfectly true. The house was small, but it had been built for a very nervous author, and the servants' quarters were shut off, padded from the rest of the house. Rawdon said no more about the sheets and things, but he looked more peaked than ever. He went back to the music room. Janet had gone to the hearth and stood with her hand on the mantel. She looked around at us, baffled. We're having a bottle of fizz, said Rawdon. Do let me take your wrap. And where was Hawken? She asked, satirically. Oh, busy somewhere upstairs. He's a busy young man, that, she said sardonically. And she sat uncomfortably on the edge of the chair where I had been sitting. When Hawken came with the tray, she said, I'm not going to drink. Rawdon appealed to me, so I took a glance. She looked inquiringly at the flushed and bright-eyed Hawken as if she understood something. The manservant left the room, we drank our wine, and the awkwardness returned. Rawdon, she said suddenly, as if she were firing a revolver at him. Alec came home tonight in a bigger mess than ever and wanted to make love to me to get off his mind. I can't stand it anymore. I'm in love with you. And I simply can't stand Alec getting too near to me. He's dangerous when he's crossed and when he's worked up. So I just came here. I didn't see what else I could do. She left off as suddenly as a machine gun leaves off firing. We were just dazed. You're quite right. Rawdon began in a vague and neutral tone. I am, am I not? She said eagerly. I'll tell you what I'll do, he said. I'll go round to the hotel tonight, and you can stay here. Under the kindly protection of Hawken, you mean? She said with quite sarcasm. Why, why, I could send Mrs. Betts, I suppose. He said. Mrs. Betts was his housekeeper. You couldn't stay and protect me yourself. She said quietly. I, why, I've made a vow. Haven't I, Joe? He turned to me. Not to have any woman sleep under my roof again. He got the mixed sour smile on his face. He looked up at the ceiling for a moment, then lapsed into silence, then said, Sort of monastery, so to speak. And she rose and reached for her wrap, adding, I'd better go, then. Joe will see you home. He said. She faced round on me. Do you mind not seeing me home, Mr. Bradley? She said, gazing at me. Not if you don't want me, said I. Hawken will drive you, said Rawdon. Oh no, he won't, she said. I'll walk. Good night. I'll, I'll get my hat, stammered Rawdon in an agony. Wait, wait, wait. The gates will be locked. 
It was open when I came, she said. He rang for Hawker to unlock the iron doors at the end of the short drive, whilst he himself huddled into a great coat and scarf, fumbling for a flashlight. You won't go till I come back, will you? He pleaded to me. I'd be awfully glad if you'd stay the night. The sheets will be aired. I had to promise, and he set off with an umbrella in the rain, at the same time asking Hawken to take a flashlight and go in front. So that was how they went, in single file, along the path over the fields to Mrs. Drummond's house, Hawken in front, with flashlight and umbrella, curving round to light up in front of Mrs. Drummond, who, with umbrella only, walked isolated between two lights, Rawdon shining his flashlight on her from the rear, from under his umbrella. I turned indoors. So that was over. At least, for the moment. I thought I would go upstairs and see how damp the bed in the guest chamber was before I actually stayed the night with Rawdon. He never had guests, preferred to go away himself. The guest chamber was a good room across a passage and round a corner from Rawdon's room, its door just opposite the padded service door. This latter service door stood open and a light shone through. I went into the spare bedroom, switching on the light. To my surprise, the bed looked as if it had just been left. The sheets tumbled, the pillows pressed. I put in my hands under the bedcloths and it was warm. Very curious. As I stood looking around in mild wonder, I heard a voice call softly, Joe. Yes, yes, said I instinctively, and, though startled, strode at once out of the room and through the servant's door towards the voice. Light shone from the open doorway of one of the servant's rooms. There was a muffled little shriek, and I was standing looking into what was probably Hawkins' bedroom and seeing a soft and pretty white leg and a pretty feminine posterior very thinly dimmed in a rather short nightdress, just in the act of climbing into a narrow little bed, and then arrested. The owner of the pretty posterior burying her face in the bedclothes to be invisible, like the ostrich in the sand. I discreetly withdrew, went downstairs and poured myself a glass of wine and very shortly Rawdon returned, looking like Hamlet in the last act. He said nothing. Neither did I. We sat and merely smoked, only as he was seeing me upstairs to bed in the now immaculate bedroom. He said pathetically, Why aren't women content to be what a man wants them to be? Why aren't they? said I wearily. I thought I made everything clear, he said. You start at the wrong end, said I. And as I said it, the picture came into my mind of the pretty feminine butt end in Hawkins' bedroom. Yes, Hawkins made better starts wherever he ended. When he brought me a cup of tea in the morning, he was very soft and cat-like. I asked him what sort of day it was, and he asked me if I had a good night, and was I comfortable? Very comfortable, said I, but I turned you out, I'm afraid. Me, sir? He turned on me a face of utter bewilderment, but I looked him in the eye. Is your name Joe? I asked him. You're right, sir, 
So is mine, said I. However, I didn't see her face, so it's all right. I suppose you were a bit tight in that little bed. Well, sir. And he flashed to me a smile of amusing impudence and lowered his tone to utter confidence. Then this is the best bed in the house, this is. And he touched it softly. You've not tried them all, surely? A look of indignant horror on his face. No, sir, indeed I haven't. That day, Rawdon left for London on his way to Tunis and Hawkins was to follow him. The roof of his house looked just the same. The drummers moved too, went away somewhere, and left a lot of unsatisfied tradespeople behind. So, what are your thoughts on this story? Let's first talk about what it did right. The characters' personalities and voice, I really felt like our protagonists, Hawkins, Mrs. Drummond, and Rawdon were real people. Their behavior, their dialogue felt authentic. And the story kept on track the entire time with a casual progression about rubes through to women and then through to Hawkins' promiscuous love affairs with the ladies of the town. What I didn't like was, well, Hawkins' promiscuous nature with the women in that town. I guess maybe the author felt like there wasn't enough of a climactic ending and decided to add that in as a story B narrative of what would normally be a singular plotline tale. So what I mean by this is some stories have singular narratives, story A stories for example, one plotline only, whilst other narratives can be story A, B, with a subplot running in parallel. You see it a lot in serialized shows like Star Trek for example. I felt that it was a little too weak on the story B part, that's all. Now of course I must draw your attention to the attribute I enjoyed the least, the objectification of women in this story, but it is a great tool to reflect on. It's a given that this behavior is not supported, although this was written almost a hundred years ago. A lot has changed. This story though provides a unique snapshot though of the unwholesome way that women were valued back then and are still facing in other facets of modern culture. Sometimes it's great to hear or read these tales to identify how far we've come, and particularly to push us forward to improve in this space. What are your thoughts on this story, mates? Are you surprised? Not surprised? Did that aspect totally ruin your enjoyment of this story? I'm keen to know. And if you outright hated this story, again, let me know, and I can steer clear of this kind of content. Now, of course, my awesome, amazing, stupendous, and other fantastical adjectives, my Patreon supporters. First up, the godlike supporters of this show, Maya and Armello. Thanks to you, I have been able to grab the K3 Sound Blaster with the cables almost here to start using it, and I've also been able to use the MIDI keyboard to produce music, and I'm learning how to utilize all these tools in unison. Thanks to you, O-Night-T Titan Patreon supporters, this show grows in quality at every episode. Thank you so, so much. And my white tea warlords galloping headfirst into the enemies of this podcast, which are boredom and bad quality audio. Thank you so much for your support, mates. Every month, your donation goes right back into the podcast to beef up the sound effects and my music game. Both of you really help this podcast shine. Thank you so much. And my astounding Earl Grey enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffelli, Tasha Moncrief, Christina Boyd, Divided by Zero, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Tea Time Drinker One, and Chris Moller. 
You put the pep in my step, and I'm ever grateful for your support. Thank you so very, very much. Listeners, I just wanted to let you know that there won't be an episode this Friday the 25th or Monday the 28th. There's a long weekend coming up and me and my pals are going to spend it together having a blast. Which means no episodes uploaded then, unfortunately. But I'll be crack-lacking full force on Wednesday next week to get back into the swing of things. So stay tuned then and I'm already looking forward to next Wednesday stories. As always, my loveliest people, till next we meet.